Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3, we're going to look at one passage today. Uh, before we do that, though, I want to make some, some comments. I've got kind of an extended introduction. One, that passage from 1 Corinthians 15 about us being raised with Christ. Man, I would just say this. If you are uh, doubting Christianity or struggling in your faith, the two things that I do almost all the time is, one, go to the resurrection of Jesus, historical event, go study that. And the other one is the early church documents, the New Testament. They came very shortly after the resurrection of Jesus. Those are things that strengthen my faith. This is a historical event that had happened. This is not just people having thoughts about things like philosophers or other religions. So those are the things that I go to a lot. All right. Something I've been thinking about this week is this week was the four-year anniversary of this church starting. So we began on February 17th, 2018, we started meeting together in here. Uh, So exactly four years ago this week. And so what I want to do at the beginning of the service, we're just going to look at one verse, so it's kind of a short sermon, Uh, but I want us to just to think about what we believe as a church, our values, what's important to us, uh, really our vision for what we want WCC to be. And so I'm kind of this weird, I'm an outline person. I've got like a part one with an A and B or one and two, and then I got a part two with, a, with an A and B, one and two, okay? So part one is this, and they kind of go together, but I, I structure it this way. One, we want WCC, and I say this all the time, but we want WCC to be number one, to be uncompromising in our commitment to God and his word, Okay. Number two is this, we want to be loving, really over-the-top loving and hospitable toward each other and toward visitors, okay? Um, And the reason I'm saying all this is because one of the things I've noticed is, and I've said this to the new members class last week, many times churches are either one or the other. A lot of times churches, if they are really committed to God and his word, a lot of times they can be a little harsh, they can be a little bit unloving and, and unhospitable, okay? And then other times when churches are truly loving and caring, a lot of times they can be a little soft and they can be a little lax on their commitment to the Lord and his word. So we want to do both. We really want to be a church that is committed, uncompromising, standing firm on the word of God, committed to Christ, really uncompromising in that. And we want to be loving and caring and hospitable. And I think there is, a, there is a very powerful combination in that that God blesses. Because frankly, as I said, there just aren't very many churches that I've found that have both of those qualities in a huge way. And I think God is looking for churches to bless them that are truly committed to him and are truly loving and caring. So we want to be that. So if it's the Lord's will, we want God to use us to, in a big way. We, we could say we want to use the, the Lord to use us to, to bring about a spiritual change in the climate in this area. It may be a small way. It may just be 50 people, 100 people. But we want God to be used by God to bring about change in this area, in our community. And, and one of the ways that, that we do this, and I've said this before too, is we take God very seriously 
We take his word very seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously. We can laugh at ourselves. I can laugh at myself, and there's a lot to laugh at, okay? So we don't, we don't need to take ourselves too seriously. I hope you sense that at WCC. Although we sort of have a high church liturgy, but we're still an informal church. I mean, I don't come up here with like a black robe, right? That would be, although that would be, if I had like a Darth Vader cape or something, that would be, that would be pretty cool. Then if we had, you know, like church discipline, I could say, I find your lack of faith disturbing. That would be, that would be awesome. Uh, But we, we we don't take ourselves seriously, but as I said, we do take the Lord and his word seriously. And that's what I want for this church. And I would say this too, about, about being welcoming and hospitable, um, something to think about. I've stressed this a lot, but if a visitor comes in, think about this, if a visitor comes in and they sit down and they're not greeted by the people around them, 95% of the church could be welcoming and hospitable. But if that person comes in and they're not greeted, then in their mind, that's an unfriendly church. And I think about that a lot. And the reason I think about that is because in our day, loneliness is a worldwide problem. It is, it is an epidemic, pandemic, loneliness. The stuff that you see, people are just very, very lonely. It's hard to make friends. It's hard to meet people. So I think God can use our genuine friendliness, our genuine attitude of caring to advance the gospel, to show people what real Christianity is like. And in my mind, we really have to be welcoming and loving. And this is important too. What that means is, and we say this a lot, we expect WCC members and even regular visitors to be welcoming and caring, to introduce yourself. You don't have to be an extrovert. Look, I'm not, you may be surprised at this, I'm not naturally an extrovert. I'm more more comfortable in small groups and by myself studying and things like that. But you can grow in introducing yourself. You don't have to be an extrovert to be a caring and welcoming person. Um, And and I would say this too, if you have, I'm not saying you have to be this right off the bat, but if you have no interest in ever becoming a loving and caring person, you have no interest in that, then WCC is probably not the place for you, honestly, because we want this to be the, the culture of our church. But I'm so thrilled because you guys are welcoming and loving. We hear this all the time. And I want it to stay that way. And I want us to continually press on in that, to continuously be caring and loving about one another and toward visitors. And we are, and it brings joy to my heart. It really does. And it brings glory to God, too, even more importantly. It brings glory to God that you guys are so welcoming and caring. And another thing, too, is it's real. It's not fake. Uh, we want it to be genuine. We won't want it to be, you know, the fake, just, ah, you know, whatever. The, the, I've been at churches that are like that. We don't want it to be. We want it to be real. And you guys want fellowship with, with one another. Georgia said you guys are signing up in small groups in huge numbers. So that's just awesome. Okay, so let's keep that up. So, all right, that's part one. Huge, important to us. We want to be committed to the Lord and his word and welcoming and hospitable. And here's part two, and it got, kind of goes along with it. But we want to be a church that emphasizes, again, two things. One is solid and deep doctrine, the rational part of our faith, solid and deep doctrine. And two, we want to be a church that emphasizes the personal, intimate, loving relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ. So we want to truly know 
God. And we want to emphasize the importance of meeting with God, encountering God, not only in our individual lives, but encountering God in, in corporate worship. So we want to emphasize solid and deep doctrine, the deep things of the faith. I want to teach and I want the other guys up here in the pulpit to teach the deep truths of the word of God. Not, not trivial stuff, not, not superficial stuff, but the deep truths of God. Now, I want to do that in a way that's understandable. I want young people to be able to understand these things. But I do want us to be people who are really diving deep into his word, okay? So that's the, sort of the rational part of our faith. And then I want us to emphasize the need for a personal, intimate, loving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I want us to emphasize that. I don't want us just to have like facts and be like a seminary with no heart. But at the same time, I don't want it to be heart and experience with no deep doctrine. I think it has to be both, okay? So, because we were made to know God and he has given us his word and that's how we know him is through his word. We're we're made to know him intimately, not just facts about him. There's a difference. I I remember the book J.I. Packer's Knowing God. It's knowing God. It's not knowing about him. There's a difference. There's a difference. And there's a mystery of encountering God, being in his presence in a special way. There's an experiential part of the faith. Understanding the mystery of being in his presence. When, like I said last week, when we open up the word of God, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. He's talking to us. When we, when we hear the word read and preached in here, when, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, I try to say that on a regular basis, that there is an intimacy, there's a fellowship with God going on that happens in a special way so when we obviously when we when we hear the word when we're singing praises when we're worshiping the lord we're encountering god in a special way and so that that's that's really my heart so both the rational part of the faith and encountering the lord and really being in his presence and and growing in our love and devotion for him and what i found is nowadays and i've heard this from many of you guys as well is that a lot of churches today, they don't do either one. They don't do either one. There is no deep doctrines of the faith. There's no deep study of his word. And there's no really loving and intimate fellowship with the Lord. I've said this before. A lot of times church services today are more like a TED talk and a concert. It's like a motivational self-help thing with a little music thrown in. That is not worshiping God. That, that is not what we're made for. Okay, a, a motivational talk, it's more of a performance, very little participation. That's one of the things we strive to show too is that all of us participate in the service. So all these things are important to us as a church. And, and what we want to do is grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. We want to grow in our love for the Lord. We want to grow in, our, in the grace and knowledge of who he is. And God is honored in that. He gets the glory it's for his praise. That's what all of our lives should be, for the glory of God, to show how awesome he is in our lives. That's it. And also, not only is it for his glory, but it is for our good as well. Okay? So that's who we are as a church. And as I said, on occasion, I just want to stress these things to kind of remind us about, about what we want to be as our church. All right, let's turn to Hebrews 3. We're going to be looking at just one verse today, Hebrews 3, verse 13. We're continuing our sermon series through the book of Hebrews. And so Hebrews 13, I just want to spend some time thinking about this verse today. I'll read it and we'll, we'll talk about it and think about it. 
Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I want to spend a lot of time thinking about this phrase, really the deceitfulness of sin. For over a month, I've been thinking about this phrase, and God has really just worked it in my heart. So I, I feel like God has brought some clarity to me about these things with this phrase, deceitfulness of sin. So I want us to think about that. Before we look at, at sin's deceitfulness, notice this. In this verse, the writer said, to, to the Hebrews says, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. So the writer is encouraging us to exhort one another. And within the church, that's who he's addressing. He's talking to the church. So within the church, we need to exhort one another, encourage one another every day on a constant basis. We need to be people who are exhorting one another in the faith, encouraging one another to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus. We need each other. We need each other to to fight sin. We need to encourage each other in this. And God uses the church. He uses one another in our fight for holiness, in our fight to remain faithful to the Lord. And so the author, the writer here says, exhort one another every day. He also says this, as long as it is called today. I love the way that he keeps talking about today. If you look at it, we talked about that a little bit last week in Hebrews chapter three, he keeps talking about today. And I think he's saying that because every day that you're in is today, right? Every day that you are experiencing right now is today. What he's saying is there's an urgency to this. There is an urgency to the fight to to remain faithful to the Lord and live lives of holiness. We see the importance too, that in this urgency, we see the importance of the church in helping one another, exhorting one another, as I said, to fight the good fight of faith to encourage one another in this. So that's the first part of verse 13. We're to to exhort one another within the church. Now, why? So let's think about the verse. Why? What's the purpose of exhorting one another? Well, it says right there. So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. All right, let's look look at the first verb there in that little passage. None of you may be hardened By the deceitfulness of sin. None of you may be hard. In in this passage in Hebrews 3, the writer is frequently talking about the heart. And he says, I don't want your heart to become hardened toward God. I don't want your heart to become calloused. He's saying, I don't want you to be insensitive to God. I don't want you to be insensitive to the voice of God, to the word of God. So the way that you have a soft heart, a sensitive heart toward God a heart sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, the way you do that is not to be deceived by sin. You see that? So so the hardening of the heart, having an insensitive heart, is caused by sin's deceitfulness. So let's think more about the deceitfulness of sin. The the, The word deceitfulness, that's a noun. We're kind of doing an English lesson. Deceitfulness is a noun. And the verb form of that is deceive or deceived. Okay. In other words, the writer is saying with this, that sin will deceive you. Sin will deceive you. And as a result of you being deceived by sin, then your heart will become hardened toward God. It'll become calloused, insensitive to God. So sin deceives us. Then after we're deceived by this sin, our hearts become calloused, insensitive, 
indifferent to God. So we're talking about the deceitfulness of sin. So let's think about how does sin deceives us, okay? I want us to really ponder this. How does sin deceive us? And by the way, the, this is not the only place in Scripture that talks about the deceitfulness of sin. There are many places in the Bible that warns about sin's deceitfulness. This is Romans 7.11. Okay? You should be able to remember that. 7.11, okay? I grew up in Texas. There was a 7.11 on every corner. So Romans 7.11 says this, listen to what Paul says. He says, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. I'm just going to summarize three words, what Paul says. He said, sin deceived me. Sin deceived me. Another one is Ephesians 4.22. Paul talks about deceitful desires. Desires that we have that are deceitful. They deceive us. Also think about this. Satan is called the father of lies. He's the father of deception. Satan has been a liar and a deceiver, practicing deception from the beginning. And the way Satan works is he gets you to believe the promises of sin, which are lies. He gets you to be ensnared by the deceitfulness of sin. This is, this is Genesis 3.1. You don't need to turn there, but just if you want to go to it. Genesis 3.1, third chapter of the Bible. This is how we're introduced to Satan. It says this, the serpent was more crafty. The serpent, the devil was crafty, deceitful. That's what that means. And then you go in the same chapter after Adam and Eve fall, they eat the fruit, they disobey. After Satan had tempted them, we read, you remember what Satan said? He said, did God really say? He's deceiver. Did God really say that, Eve? Really? Then he, then he just add out, flat out contradicts God. He says, you will not surely die. You're not going to die. He, he deceives like that. Then we see in, in Genesis 3.13, after Eve ate the fruit, you know what she told God? She said, the serpent deceived me. And that's true. But she was blaming the serpent. She was not taking any responsibility for her own sin. But the serpent did deceive her. She was deceived. So we can be deceived by Satan. We can be deceived by sin. And what the author, again, is saying in Hebrews 3.13 is as a result of sin's deceitfulness, our hearts become hardened, indifferent to God. So listen, if you're a believer, you don't want to become insensitive to the voice of God. You want to be in close fellowship with him. And, and sin, which sin's deceitfulness, causing this hardness of heart, will create this barrier between you and God. We create this barrier in your relationship with God. Sin will harden your heart so you won't be as close to God. You won't feel the same intimacy with the Lord. So it's clear that we can be deceived by sin. So again, how does then sin deceive us? How does sin trick us? I want to give you a wonderful quote from Simone Weil. Simone Weil was a European philosopher who lived in the early 1900s. She was an agnostic. She was a Marxist, okay? But later she became interested in Christianity. Now, I don't know her heart. I don't know if she actually became a Christian. A lot of times these philosophers come out of this and they have, a lot, they have difficulty with this. But she, she made this quote, and I think we have it, this quote from Simone Weil. Listen to what she says about evil and good. She says, imaginary evil is romantic and varied. Real evil is gloomy, monotonous, barren, boring. Imaginary good is boring, 
Real good is always new, marvelous, intoxicating. Sin deceives us by making promises to us and then we believe those promises. And we believe that, that sin, when you have these imaginations about sinful things, it comes to you across to you as romantic and exciting. Imaginary evil, she says, is, is exciting. But, but real evil, as she says, it's gloomy, monotonous, and boring. And then imaginary good. When we have imagination about doing good, it, it seems to us it's just really boring. But then when you, real, when you look at a real life of somebody devoted to Jesus Christ, loving other people, serving him, care, sacrificing for other people, that is a life of beauty. It's, it's, as she said, it's new, marvelous, intoxicating. But see, we think sin is exciting. We're deceived by sin. So I want us to keep thinking about how sin deceives us. Now, this is, this is what has, has been blowing me away, okay? Think about this. When someone deceives you, they say something to you, they give some indication to you about something, but it's not true. It's a lie. And the problem is we believe these lies of sin, all right? So when sin deceives us, it, it does that by lying to us. Sin makes these promises that are not true. The problem is, as I said, we believe these lies of sin. Instead of believing God, we believe sin's promises. So sin deceives us. And as, as I've been pondering this phrase, the deceitfulness of sin, I realize this. When we're being deceived by anything, doesn't matter what it is, but when we're being deceived, in that moment, we don't know we're being deceived. We don't know it. We don't realize it. We don't know we're being deceived. If we were aware that we were being deceived, then we wouldn't be deceived, right? But in that moment, when we're being deceived, we don't know it. And that's the scary part. Something else to think about. Think about a person who is engaged in some secret sin, okay? So the person is some, in some secret sin. It could be anything. It could be, they can be stealing in some way. They're, they're cheating on an expense report or cheating on taxes or whatever. They're engaged in some secret sin. They're looking at images they shouldn't be looking at and fantasizing about them. Or they're watching stuff that they know they shouldn't be watching. They're doing all this in secret. Or they're doing stuff with a boyfriend or girlfriend they know they shouldn't be doing it. Or a married person is flirting with a coworker. right? They're fantasizing about being married to someone else. Whatever it is, they're doing something in secret. Or they're committing adultery. So they're, but they're doing it in secret and they're engaged in some secret sin. Now, here's the thing. When that person is engaged in that secret sin, they're trying to deceive other people. They're trying to deceive their spouse. They're trying to deceive their parents. They're trying to deceive their kids, their friends, whatever. So in this secret sin, they think that they're being deceptive. They're trying to be deceptive. And they think that they're, they're getting away with something. They think that they are pulling one over on some, someone else. They think they're being crafty. They think they're being tricky and misleading. Okay? They, they think they're being slick and getting away with it. But here's what's happening. In reality, they are the ones being deceived. Sin is deceiving them. They think other people are suckers. They think they're pulling one over on other people. But in fact, they are the ones being deceived. Because sin is deceiving them. Sin is pulling one over on them. Sin is leading them down a path toward destruction. 
a path toward broken relationships with other people, a path toward a lack of intimacy with God. So again, they think that they are the ones being deceptive through this secret sin, but in fact, they're the ones being deceived. They don't realize it. They're not aware of it. The joke's on them because they are being deceived by sin. As I said, sin deceives us by making promises. Sin makes promises of fun and pleasure. Sin says if you do this sinful thing, it can be a little thing, a little peek, a little flirt, a little deception, a little lie, whatever it is. Sin says if you do this, it's going to make your life better. It's going to lead to to fun or pleasure. It'll make things easier. Sin lies. It says there's no harm in this little thing. You can stop whenever you want. And we believe it. Sin deceives us into thinking up fantasies. Oh, if I was married to this person instead of my spouse, then my life would be wonderful. Or if I was with this coworker, or if I did this to have more money, whatever it is, sin, make these promises that your life is going to be more enjoyable if you engage in some sin. But what sin doesn't do, because sin is crafty and deceitful, sin doesn't reveal the consequences Sin doesn't reveal the consequences of what is going to happen when you go down this path. And what the Bible teaches over and over again is that sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. Listen, do you know why God gives us his law? You know why God gives us his word? He does that because he loves us. That's why he does that. And he knows what's best for us. The Lord gives us his law because he loves us and he wants us to have a blessed life. He wants us to have a happy life. Not by getting rich and famous. No, God wants us to have a happy, blessed life by living for him, by living lives of holiness for his glory and for our good. That's why he gives us his law. He doesn't want us to dabble in sin because it's terrible for us. It's destructive. It destroys your soul. God doesn't want us to be fooled by the deceitfulness of sin because he wants us to flourish because he loves us. And the Bible makes it clear that, again, sin has consequences. In fact, there's another verse in scripture that has to do with being deceived and it talks about the consequences of sin. It's Galatians 6, 7. Galatians 6, 7 says this, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. He said, don't be deceived. You're not going to mock God. You're not going to pull one over on God. A person reaps what he sows. That means that you reap a harvest. You gather in whatever you sow, whatever you plant. So you plant a little rebellion in your heart. You intentionally start sinning in some way. As I said, a little fantasizing, a little flirting, whatever, a little lying, a little deception, a little complaining about your circumstances. Whatever it is, you start planting that stuff. And what does it lead to? kind of harvest do you reap? It's a harvest of heartache. It's a harvest of chaos and destruction. And the reason you did it was because sin deceived you. Now listen, I've stressed this before too. We're always going to have sin in us. This side of heaven, we're always going to have, we're never going to be completely free from sin. But, but this is the key. We've got to fight it. We've got to fight sin. We have to fight it every day. We can't give in. As, as we pray every single week together, Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We pray that every week. And when we sin, which we will, we have a time of corporate confession every week. 
And we even pray, Father, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins. And when we sin, we repent of it. And repentance means actually turning away and taking real practical steps to turn away. It doesn't mean, yeah, I feel kind of bad for my sin, but I'm just going to keep on doing it. That's not repentance. Repentance is turning away in a real way, taking practical steps to turn away. So we have to fight sin. And we can't underestimate the deceitfulness of sin. Elizabeth Elliot said this. My wife told me about this quote, and I think it's great. I don't know if we have it. Yeah, thank you, Topher. Spiritual, Elizabeth Elliot said, spiritual strongholds begin with a thought. One thought becomes a consideration. A consideration develops into an attitude, which leads to action. Action repeated becomes a habit, and a habit establishes a power base for the enemy. That is a stronghold. So she's saying the way the enemy can get into your life is through a stronghold, a base, an encampment in your soul. And the way it happens is it starts with a thought. Again, we're thinking about the deceitfulness of sin. And the thought becomes a consideration. You consider it. You, you, you consider it more and more. You dwell on it. You may fantasize about it. Then the consideration becomes an attitude. And you think, yeah, my spouse isn't treating me like they should. Or, or these people, my boss, this company isn't treating me like they should. My parents don't understand me. Whatever the attitude is. Then you have this attitude, which then leads to this action because I'm not being treated right. In fact, people, what I've learned is people in adultery, they will make up fake histories about their marriage to convince themselves that their, mar- that their spouse is terrible. Their spouse, obviously, we all sin against each other, but people will rationalize and they will make up stuff to, to deceive themselves in this way. So we, they say, I'm not being treated right, so I'm going to do this. I'm going to take this action. And you think it's no big deal. You think I can stop at any time. You know what? If you can stop at any time, why not stop before you do it? (laughs) It's a lot easier to stop before you start doing something. So sin has deceived this person. Then the action is repeated and it becomes a habit. Continuation. And then your heart then becomes hardened. It becomes calloused. You develop a hard heart. And we see this in our own lives, don't we? When, When you first did that thing, your conscience hits you and you're bothered by it. The first time you looked at that image, it was like a punch in the gut. You felt so guilty, you were torn up inside. But then after you look at those images a lot, you know what, it doesn't bother you anymore. Why is that? Because sin has deceived you and you've de- developed a hard heart. The first time you, you deceived somebody, told a little lie, whatever it was, it tore you up. But then you kept doing it and it doesn't bother you as much. Your heart becomes insensitive. There was a guy I knew one time, saddens me to think about it. There was a guy I knew one time who was so prideful about how correct he was in his doctrine and how other people were just so lame. They were not nearly as solid in, in their doctrine as him. He was sold out for the Lord and all these other folks were lukewarm. They were lame. But then get this, this dude got caught in adulterous relationships, multiple adulterous relationships. And you know what he said? He said, well, we all have our weaknesses. It was not a big deal to him. Other people's sin was really horrible, but his wicked, foul, evil sin, just, it was just like, well, we're all sinners. You know, we all have our weaknesses. And a lot of times we can do that. A lot of times we can hate other people's sin and we don't really hate our sin too much if we're honest. This is how sin deceives us. I knew another guy 
Another church guy was caught in adultery and the way he responded was by lashing out at all the hypocrites in the church. (laughs) I was like, huh? You're in gross, wicked sin. You ruined your lives and the lives of those around you and you got caught. And instead of being broken and repentant, you start blaming other people about how they're hypocrites. This is how sin deceives. This is the deceitfulness of of sin. And many times there are people in the church who go down a path, they start doing something and they never thought they would go down that path. That's why we need to have a healthy fear of sin. We need to have a healthy fear of what sin can do when it deceives us. So, so the question is, how, how do we keep from getting tricked by the deceitfulness of sin? Real quick, I'm almost finished. One is prayer. One is prayer. Just pray that God will reveal to you areas in your life where you're most susceptible to sins, deceitfulness. Just pray. Ask God to help you in that. Also, we need to remind ourselves all the time, as I said, that God's ways are best. We need to remind each other that God's ways are best. Jesus said this in Luke eleven twenty eight. He said, simple phrase, happy are those who hear and obey. Happy are those who hear and obey God's word. Also, as it says in Hebrews 3.13, as a people of God, we need to exhort one another every day. We need to constantly encourage one another. God has designed us in such a way that we need each other. He uses the church to help each other. I'm guessing that many times your faith is strongest when you're around other committed believers. When you're in the church, you're around brothers and sisters in Christ. When you have godly conversations with one another, that's often when our faith is strongest. Because God uses our brothers and sisters in Christ to draw us closer to him. God uses each other to encourage us to draw near to him. This is how we don't get tricked by the deceitfulness of sin. And I'm going to say this. I'm going to address our non-Christian friends and I'm going to address maybe a Christian who is, realizes you've been deceived by sin. As a reminder, if you're a Christian, you already know this. But if you're not a Christian, I would just ask you to, to think about this. Maybe you've been, you realize you've been deceived by sin. I want you to hear the words of one of my favorite songs. It's all I have is Christ. Listen to the lyrics. It says this, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. It said the sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. This was my experience. I can tell you my experience in high school and college, and then after I got out for a few years, after I got out of college for a few years. Sin had promised, as the song says, sin had promised joy and life. Sin had made these promises to me. And I remember having experiences. It didn't happen all the time. But I would have experiences sometimes, and I would think, I am doing everything basically I can to please myself. And I would realize it's not satisfying. My soul was not content. I remember one time I was at a fraternity party and I was out on the porch of, our, of my fraternity, drinking a beer, all these girls around, all this fraternity. I remember I was drinking a beer. I was sitting here thinking, this is what life is supposed to be like, right? Like this is what I've been told and what I think will give me contentment and joy. And I remember having this thought, if this is it, then life is terrible because there is no contentment in this. I was not even a Christian and I knew that, that my life was dark and empty. 
When I got out of college, I remember again, I'm living in, I grew up in Texas. I was living in Wilmington, Delaware at the time. I remember having this thought, looking out the window in downtown Wilmington, Delaware, looking out of my apartment, looking out, I had, I had kept thinking that the next thing was going to make me content. I thought if I, if I got in college and got away from my parents, then I would be content. I would have this satisfaction. I wasn't, I wasn't, but I thought, you know what? I need to travel and make money and do all this. And, and I, I was doing it. I was getting every, that was the worst part. I was getting everything I wanted. I was making money. I was traveling. And I remember looking at my apartment in, in Delaware, just thinking, is this it? Like, is this life? It was just so, what was it? Sin had deceived me. The world tells us that if you get these things, if you please yourself, then you're going to be content. It's a lie. It is an absolute lie. And that's what the song says. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I felt like my soul was dead. And then the song continues. It says, I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will, God. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. If God had not loved me first, set his affection on me first, I would have been refusing him. And it says, but as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, that's why I was. I was running my hellbound race and I didn't care about the cost. I wanted to please myself. It says, as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you, God, looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. Jesus, you suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me, and now all I know is grace. I saw the cross. I saw Jesus dying in my place. The, the wrath that should have come to me, Jesus took it upon himself. Then he says, there's no condemnation for you, Jeff. I love you. That's what God says to everyone, every one of you in here. You put your faith in Jesus. There's no condemnation on you. Jesus has taken it all. And then the next part of the song is hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Listen, maybe you realize you've been deceived by sin. Maybe your life is a wreck right now. That's, a lot of times that's where God brings us. He brings us when we're broken. We realize our lives are a wreck. That's a perfect place to be. Because then you can cry out to Christ and you can see him on the cross. Maybe you realize sin has been making promises to you. They've been lies. And you've tried to fill up your life with joy and contentment by the things of the world, by sinful stuff. And you realize it's just led to emptiness. Listen, hope is found in a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. By loving him and being loved by him. We were made to be in relationship with God through Jesus. He's our only hope. And in Christ... That's where true contentment, true joy, true hope, that's where that's found. It's where eternal life is found, only in Jesus. So my prayer is you'd be able to say the words, again, the words from all I have is Christ. Listen to these words. This is my prayer for everybody in here, that you would say, Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. And let my song forever be this. Let my song for always be this. My only boast is you. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Jesus, we love you. Holy Spirit, we love you. Thank you for your
your truth. Thank you for revealing to us the deceitfulness of sin. I pray, I pray all, all of us are deceived by sin, Lord. We realize that. It's not just people who are in some terrible sin. All of us at times are deceived by sin. And I pray that you would reveal that to us. And I pray that you would help us to overcome the deceitfulness. We'd really repent and change out of a motivation to bring glory to you because we know how much you love us. Please, Lord, change hearts, save somebody today. Allow them to see the cross, the the fact that you bore the wrath that was reserved for us. Jesus, you're so good, you're so kind. Thank you for being here with us now. Thank you for revealing truth to us. Thank you for loving us. I pray that people in here would know just how much you love them, really. That they would know how much you care about them. They would, they would really sense that in their spirits. So we love you and praise you. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for being our Savior and King. May our lives really bring honor and glory to you above all things. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. It's now the time in our service when we get to partake of the Lord's Supper. We get to fellowship with him. We get to fellowship with him in a spiritual way. This is a, it's a means of grace where we meet with the Lord in a special way as we partake of the elements. This is not just for members of Walton Community Church. This is uh, if you put your faith in Jesus and you're not cherishing sin. And as I said before, if you are cherishing sin, repent of it. Turn away. Come to the table and fellowship. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He broke the bread and said, This is my body, which is for you. His broken body for us. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Let's pray again. Lord Jesus, thank you for being our Savior. Thank you for your broken body and shed blood in our place as our substitute. Thank you for loving us and going to the cross. I just keep thinking more about your humanity, just how much you suffered for us. Your love is just amazing, Lord. We love you. Thank you for fellowshipping with us now. Again, I just pray for folks here. I pray all of us would truly know how much you love us and what you've done for us and how you guide our lives every day. So we love you and praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.